Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. The Afghan peace talk started in September 2020. And with the second round that started in January 2021, it's an interesting time to get an update on the process. The goal of these intra-Afghan talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government is to create a roadmap to peace and a government both parties can recognize. But things have moved slowly, and there are many hurdles to overcome. Meanwhile, Afghans live with the consequences. Today, I'm talking to Kiristan Badkhabvigan about how the talks have gone thus far and what can be expected moving forward. Kiristan is a research professor at Prio, director of the Prio Middle East Center, and former director of the Institute. His research interests include negotiations and mediation, and he's focused on Afghanistan for much of his career. More recently, Kiristan now leads the four-year project Reaching Out to Close the Border, the transnationalization of anti-immigration movements in Europe. Welcome, Kiristan Badkhabvigan. I'm really glad to have you back on the podcast again. Um, We're going to be talking today about the Afghan peace negotiations. And I just wanted to start with the status of the negotiations right now. Um, I mean, it's been almost 20 years since the international intervention that toppled the Taliban, but talks between them and the government only started last year. So why didn't that happen sooner? And and what is the status at the moment? Well, right now, the, um, the negotiations are frozen. The parties have been back to their respective leaderships and consulted, and nothing is really going on. And the main reason that nothing's going on now is really that they're both waiting to see where the Biden administration is going to jump. Now, I don't think much surprise will come from where the Biden administration jumps, but the, the party seems to be hopeful um, that there will be a different type of commitment from the Biden administration. And, you know, the story about these negotiations, if you look at it in the 20 years perspective from the uh, 2001 U.S.-led intervention to today, is is a very sad one. And you can sum it up in one sentence. Uh, The more difficult it has been, uh, it has become to reach an agreement, the more eager all external parties have become to, uh, to, um, to broker one. So, you know, back in 2001, the Taliban were really crushed as an organization. The little that remained of the organizations were eager to reach out and become included in whatever political compromise uh, there would be. But uh, the international community, as well as those who were party to the deal that was negotiated in Bonn in Germany in November, December 2001, they didn't welcome the Taliban. And then the Taliban gradually rebuilt as a military organization from 2003 to 2004 onwards. And the more forceful the Taliban got militarily and and also politically, uh, um, and the more success they had, uh, the more eager one became to talk. But the turnaround, turning point was really 2018, late 2018, when the U.S. really finally gave in to the Taliban demand that they talk directly to them. Until then, the U.S. has said, Taliban, you need to talk to the legitimate government of the Afghan uh, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Uh, We don't talk to these marionettes, was the Taliban response. And uh, when, when the U.S. turned around and engaged with the Taliban against the will of the Afghan government, that's when things started to happen. But by now... 
the sad story is that uh, to the extent that the Afghan government had uh, any good cards at its hand entering those negotiations, those cards have basically been given up to the Taliban in the course of the US-Taliban negotiations. So the government now finds itself in a very, very difficult place. So uh, what kind of cards are you talking about when you say they've sort of lost that edge? Um, what sort of developments have, have there been since the U.S. has gotten more involved in that sense? But the first thing the Taliban got is really the recognition that it entailed to be sitting down at the table with the United States. Of course, that is quite something for a ragtag uh, rural Islamic movement in, in, in Afghanistan to be taken that seriously. So... So that, that really was something in its own right. And then the Taliban have been very focused on getting their uh, prisoners released. And uh, as many as 5,000 Taliban prisoners have been released, some of them very, very high profile. Um, so that's, that's really been something. Um, and uh, the Taliban have gotten the U.S. to commit to pull out militarily from Afghanistan, which, of course, is really the big deal. It's been what they've been fighting for through, throughout. But what that also means is that when the Afghan government sit out, sits down at the negotiation table, it does not have uh, the, uh, the card, the threat that it would entail to be able to say, unless we reach a deal, we will have U.S. military presence here for the next five or 10 or 20 years, because it's already a given that the U.S. is pulling out, and that's not going to change. Nobody believes it's going to change. Uh, and therefore, the, um, the, uh, the hand of the, the government is very, very significantly weakened. So I don't want to focus too much on the U.S., but just to, to cap that topic off, now that um, Biden is president of the U.S., and that troop withdrawal commitment was made under Trump. Uh, you, it seems like you're saying there's no chance that that the U.S. will go back on that. Um, but if this, so if all the troops do withdraw in the near future, what effect could that have on the on the situation? Well, firstly, the official position of the Biden administration is that we are undertaking a review of the commitments made. Now, nobody believes that that will really be a thorough review in the sense of revisiting all policy options. Biden has been more consistent than any other American politician in his uh, stance on Afghanistan. Already in 2009, when uh, uh, newly elected or newly installed Barack Obama committed to a military surge, uh, Vice President Biden was strongly against it. He argued for a minor anti-terror uh, presence in Afghanistan and for pulling out the major uh, military presence and going for whatever political deal was uh, was possible. Uh, and that's basically what he's been saying every time he's been asked about Afghanistan since. So that's why I'm saying I don't think a... Um, I, I think when, when, when Trump has made Biden the deal, of the, the, the favor, <laughs> sorry, of pulling the U.S. forces out, I don't think there's a chance in hell that Biden is going to reverse that. That, that would draw him exactly into the position that he doesn't want to be. That said, it's not going to be easy for the U.S. administration because uh, they have committed to pull all forces out. Uh, and if they insist on keeping a uh, minimal counter-terror presence, which has been Biden's favorite uh, setup all along, then the Taliban may actually go back to... Um, to fight the American presence, because that's not in accordance with the deal that uh, 
Trump has struck. So in that sense, uh, Biden also finds himself between a rock and a hard place. And it's not inevitable that he may not be pulled back in, at least to a larger extent than what he really ideally would want to be. Mm. Uh, so going to, back to the focus on Afghanistan and, and not just the U.S., um, the two parties insist in these talks that the, the talks should be Afghan-led and Afghan-owned. So what does that really mean? Why is that? And is it a prescription for success in this case? Well, it's something that they have agreed on. Both parties are insistent that these should be Afghan talks and they don't want anybody else in the room when they sit down uh, at the table. The fact of the matter is that there has been a a facilitator, a mediator, even a very muscular uh, facilitator, namely the U.S. Special Representative on Afghan Reconciliation, Salman Khalid Saab. He's an Afghan-American who's been deeply involved in Afghan affairs from the 1980s to the present, throughout all the wars of the past 40 years. Uh, a neoconservative, uh, he was appointed by Trump to take on this task. His mandate has been prolonged by, uh, by Biden, at least for now. We'll see how long that lasts. But of course, he is the one that is able to threaten the different parties. He's the one that commands uh, the, the instruments of power. Uh, the problem is that it's very likely that his mandate will expire uh, and the mandate of the U.S., the willingness of the U.S. to fill the role as a mediator will expire in the next few months. Uh, and there's really nobody there uh, that's willing to step in and take that role. And the parties even aren't welcoming that role. So it's a high risk that uh, if and when the U.S. Um, um, the U.S. Uh, um, pulls out of the negotiations to mediation role, mediation role they have, uh, that talks will uh, will simply fall to pieces. So you've written about this a lot, but much hope has been pinned on the commitment to a reduction in violence, uh, as it's been called. The Taliban have refused a ceasefire. And there's we've seen violence uh, still happening. Um, does that threaten the peace process? It's a major threat to the peace process. In fact, it's a quite desperate situation because when the agreement between the U.S. and Taliban was signed in late February last year, uh, most Afghans really hoped that they would see a significant reduction in violence. Reduction in violence is the very concept that has been used in response to the fact that the Taliban have absolutely been against committing to a uh, formal ceasefire. The U.S.-Taliban agreement did actually commit the Taliban to... uh, not attack the U.S. and its uh, allies. Some were hopeful that that would entail, uh, that would also imply the Afghan government, that the Afghan government would be amongst those allies. It has proven that that is not the case. So whereas the Taliban have, in a sense, stuck to the commitment not to attack U.S. forces uh, and the forces of uh, other international uh, internationals uh, present in, in Afghanistan, they have escalated their warfare against uh, the government. And not only that, but there is also over the past few months been uh, a whole spate of attacks against media people, civil society activists, people in the security branches, people in government, in Kabul and uh, and elsewhere. And this has now become so bad over the past two, three months that a lot of people have left the country. They're not really moving about. They have at least shifted their families out of the country. And it's uh, it's really uh, very, very serious. Also, in the consequence it has for people's willingness and ability to 
to speak out. So the space for public debate in Afghanistan now is uh, very different from what it was just uh, a few few months back. And and the Afghan government isn't entirely helpful either because they are also constraining their own people from uh, engaging in public debate and uh, and. Uh, engaging with the media and so forth so it's 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 really a sad situation and very very worrisome for the uh, for the peace process i just wanted to touch on semantics and and the actual kind of really nitty-gritty of the talks uh because i think this reduction in violence versus ceasefire is is one example of that but also uh the the word islamic has been another really big sticking point um what is that like for people in the actual peace talks? What is the starting point that they're at? Because it seems like if two parties can't even agree on what Islamic could mean for the state, how how do they find common ground? Well, it's interesting because, of course, one of the things that uh, everybody expects to become really, really difficult once one gets into uh, into substantial talks. And substantial talks haven't really started, but once one gets into those uh, the role of Islam in society, the uh, the relationship between Islam and the state is going to be a sticking point that has to do with things like rights, women's rights uh, and rights in general, uh, the status of the uh, justice system, but also ultimately how uh, power is distributed. And uh, to the extent that the Taliban have said anything about that, uh, they seem to indicate that they think that there should be a a body that is not subject to elections or any democratic controls that uh, that is composed of uh, vice men with with an Islamic background, uh, a little bit modelled after the system that we see in Iran. Although of course Afghanistan is primarily Sunni, whereas uh, Iran is Shia. That is the uh, the only model that they have found that they can refer to. So this is going to be extremely tricky. And it came up in a very interesting way in the sort of early talks where where the parties were basically discussing the rule book, where the Taliban insisted that any dispute in the negotiations, and that this should be codified in the rule book, any dispute in the negotiations should, should be settled according to the Hanafi jurisprudence, which is one school within Sunni Islamic thought, and which implicitly means that all who aren't followers of the Hanafi will still have to accept a settlement according to the uh, Hanafi interpretation of Islam. Uh, this is particularly troublesome for Afghanistan's Shia minority, who, uh, who of course, follows an entirely different interpretation of, uh, um, of, um, of Islam. So, so this is at the heart of the negotiations and very, very difficult. Then again, Neither the government nor the uh, Taliban, in particular the Taliban, have been very willing to uh, to uh, be precise on what their expectations are. They're keeping their options open. Mm. And I just wanted to touch on one more roadblock to the peace talks, or one I would presume would be a roadblock, and that's the pandemic. Um, do you know anything about how that has affected this process? Has it affected the process? Has it slowed it down? Or... Uh, conversely, maybe brought people together? Well, I think it has basically been, well, primarily been negative. But how seriously negative it's been, I'm not sure about. Uh, It has prevented mobility. People have traveled less. 
but we have seen that the parties have been able to get to Doha and they have been able to get together. And we also see that most of the international, the external countries that have a strong interest in the negotiations have had their have had their representatives in Doha, not traveling back and forth in the way that they would in a normal situation, but nonetheless being represented being represented there. Unfortunately, I don't see much sign that there is a sort of uh, we're in this together effect of the pandemic. Uh, one could have hoped that that would be the case. And ultimately, Afghanistan doesn't have the resources to really address the pandemic anyhow. So if you, you know, a lot of people have died, a lot of people have... Um, have been seriously ill, uh, but the health system just doesn't have the capacity. And I don't think the figures that we see from Afghanistan has anything to do with the realities of how many lives have been lost and how many people have been uh, have contracted the pandemic. Mm. Afghanistan's geographical neighbors have been blamed for interfering. So, what is their role in the in the ongoing peace process? Do they support it or how have they been involved? Well, the optimists after 2001 would say that uh, this is the time when Afghanistan's potential as a connector between uh, the regions surrounding Afghanistan should be realized. So um, Afghanistan, in many ways, with this conflict has been a bit of a block between Central Asia, South Asia and even uh, uh, the Gulf Gulf region. Now, potentially, it could be a a connector. But the problem is that the countries that have an interest in Afghanistan, the countries that are involved in Afghanistan, and most of the states in the wider neighborhood really are, they're not there, first and foremost, because of their commitment to Afghanistan. They're there, first and foremost, because they are embroiled in existential conflicts within their own regions. So take the example of Pakistan, for example, who have probably been certainly been by far the most unhelpful neighbor in Afghanistan over the past 40 years. For Pakistan, ultimately, it's not about Afghanistan. It's about India. India is the existential existential threat. Uh, That is ultimately what determines uh, the main decisions in Pakistan's uh, foreign policy and security policy. Uh, And what's happened after 2001 is that India has become a much more significant actor in Afghanistan than they used to be. So to the extent that uh, Pakistan was concerned about uh, Afghanistan, they now feel more concerned than than ever and therefore uh, continue to be equally unhelpful. A lot has been invested after 2001 in trying to foster a sort of a regional concert to contribute to, Afghan, to a peaceful <laughs> development in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, what we now see is that that concert just isn't there. Uh, the uh, US representative for reconciliation, for example, who tries to broker peace, have given up on all the regional fora that has been established, but that potentially could take on the task. Uh, and deals with country one at the countries around Afghanistan one at a time. Uh, there is really no no functioning fora. And that is a big worry because simultaneously we do see that all of these countries, they are they are preparing for the worst. They are expecting that the situation in Afghanistan tomorrow may be uh, even worse than it is today. Some people are talking about a return to civil war, which is a bit of a misnomer because, of course, for anybody who lives in Afghanistan, they are really in a serious civil war all, uh, already. 
but the situation could nonetheless become worse. And that is what the countries in the region are preparing for. What I see less of is any of them preparing for or even being hopeful that, uh, that uh, fostering a regional concert and contributing to a peaceful uh, development in Afghanistan is, is, is a realistic scenario. So do you think it's at all realistic from your point of view that there will be peace in the near future? Or what could that even look like at this point? Well, I see plenty of blocks, uh, but there are, of course, also opportunities. And as long as people are talking, which they are at the moment, there, uh, there, is, uh, there is hope. Uh, I'm a little worried that there is enormous impatience on part of the international community. And, of course, the U.S. are committed to have their troops out by late May. They are certainly impatient to see results. But the distance between the parties, uh, not only in terms of positions, but in terms of fund fundamental value expectations and in terms of what they expect future Afghanistan to look like, that distance is such that uh, I think any peace process that hasn't taken much more time than between now and May is, is likely to be lead to an unsustainable result. So I think the best we can hope for really is that... Uh, the process continues, that there is serious engagement and that there is time is given by which the, uh, the parties can continue to, uh, to develop, fine-tune, uh, modify their positions and understand each other. I think that is the best we can hope for. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trighauger, with research help this week from Simona Cicillo. Music by Martha Nenemol. <laughs>